Today on Ag News Daily. We really started to recognise that producers themselves wanted to get involved directly in the development of some of the solutions. I guess they were a little bit frustrated that um, some of the technology companies were not really listening to them. Good afternoon and welcome to another Tech Tuesday episode here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr and I've got Dawson Schmidt on with me today and I'm pretty excited to talk to Dawson, see what's been going on up in Iowa. But we're also doing our Tech Tuesday interview with a company out in Australia. So I'm really excited. So folks, please do stay tuned in for that. But in the meantime, Dawson, what's been going on in your neck of the woods? Well, Ashton, it's great to be here again today. Um, I guess today is the first day that I am officially entering summer as I turned in my last college assignment uh, yesterday. So I am officially a senior now. I was just about to ask you if it was summer yet. Today is really my first day of summer, too. I turned in my last uh, project or assignment yesterday. So I am have a t- like two to three week break until I'm in summer classes. Are you doing summer classes, Dawson? I'm not. I, I just try to stay away from those as much as I can just to kind of enjoy my summer and do what else I feel like doing instead of having to focus on more classes, especially with, you know, this longer semester of not having a spring break and also having like an extended, uh, you know, winter break that led to, you know, a longer semester. I definitely feel that. We did the same thing at Tech. We started later. I didn't have a spring break. And so we're still ending around the same time that we normally do, but I hate summer classes. I remember I took them this summer after, you know, my first year at college. And I told my dad I was never doing that again. And then I've taken summer classes every summer since, but I'm taking three courses this semester or this summer. And it just puts me a little bit ahead of getting my master's degree. So I guess I'll just endure it. Right. And there's no problem with that, but good luck to you. See, I'd rather just be able to enjoy my summer, but I I guess I'm a working girl now. I got to grow up sometime, right? (laughs) Of course. Well, Dawson, kicking things off, talking about some news here. Well, I I don't know that I would necessarily call this news, but I do have a quick question for you. Have you ever heard of the Corn Warriors? I can't say this. Corn Warriors. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say I have. Well, I guess it's a group of men. I just saw this. Somebody talked about it on Twitter today. So I looked them up on Facebook and looked up their website. But it's a group of men from all across the U.S., um, ranging from Maryland to Arkansas and, you know, kind of everywhere in between. But they're kind of in a race of sorts. And it's kind of like a a docu-series um, so they, it's video production and all that good stuff. They're trying to get the best PWR, which stands for Primitive Warrior Rating. And so they're kind of competing with their crop. And I haven't watched any episodes or anything like that, but it seems pretty interesting. And the group is even trying to get their episodes up on Hulu. Um, I think their fourth season is airing right now, um, or it has already aired and they've done a full four seasons. But I thought it was pretty interesting. And I mean, we just talked talked last week about um, for our 30 under 30 interview talking about film and how that plays a role in agriculture. So I thought this was pretty interesting. I might have to go and get a season pass so I can watch. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. I mean, I try to limit my screen time as much as I can, especially rolling into the summer months. But I guess if I forget the chance on a not so nice day, I can always stay inside and maybe check that out as well. 
See, I would love to limit my screen time, but since my school is online, my work is online, I have just had to roll with the punches, get some blue light glasses and hope for the best. Well, I definitely agree there. But kind of getting into some other news, you know, we're hearing a lot of these gas shortages that keep creeping into the mainstream news, um, kind of driven by, you know, truck drivers not being in supply to, you know, actually take oil to gas stations or to those refineries. But kind of the thing that's dominated this past few days is that, you know, a cyber attack actually hit the colonial pipeline that reaches from Texas all the way to, I believe, Massachusetts or something around that area, which has actually caused a scare for a major gas shortage reaching across uh, different states. And so currently, I believe 17 different states, including the District of Columbia, is also uh, a state of emergency. So basically, the scare has crept into kind of what we saw last year with a lot of people buying out on goods. So people are considered to have irrational behavior when it comes to actually buying out Um, all the gas that's available, and it's led to long lines at gas stations. Um, North Carolina has also issued a state of declaration for uh, fuel industries to actually start, like, essentially not being regulated when it comes to fuel blending, like we have been seeing with all the, you know, ethanol, ethanol plants trying to get into the gasoline. And so trying to see that happen to make sure that there's enough available Um, There hasn't really been any price hikes yet that consumers are experiencing as long as the um, as long as gas stations can stay open with their supply. Um, But it's just really interesting to see that, you know, we're having mile long lines of people lined up at the pump. And it's really causing some scare for some people in in some areas, which we haven't really seen much of that, you know, in the Midwest. But some of these eastern states are really experiencing that. You know, Dawson, I'm glad that you brought this up because honestly, at first I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it because it was just basically people talking online about this potential shortage. And I didn't want to get too nervous about it or anything because it was just talk at that point. But one of my friends that I have on Snapchat posted today, she's in North Carolina, and it took her quite some time to find a station that actually had fuel for her car. And she posted like all the people getting gas around her and there were insane lines. So I'm really hoping at least, you know, for the world of agriculture, that it doesn't get too bad because we could see kind of a domino effect like some other countries are kind of seeing right now with fuel shortages. And one of those is Cuba and this fuel shortage coupled with a couple of other key items are going to affect their sugar harvest. Cuba's sugar harvest is supposed to draw to a close as we continue to go through this coronavirus pandemic. And the coronavirus pandemic is really the central issue on why the production is standing at a little more than two thirds of planned levels. And that indicates the smallest crop in more than a century for Cuba's sugar harvest. Jose Carlos Santos Ferrer, who is the first vice president of the state sugar monopoly in Cuba, told the Cuban the state Cuban news agency that as of the end of April, production had reached 68% of the country's plan with a plan target announced earlier this year at 1.2 million tons of raw sugar. That means a harvest of 816,000 tons, which is the lowest that we've seen since 1908. 
And like I said, the pandemic is just one of the things that is, you know, causing this super low harvest. But the shortage of foreign exchange to purchase fuel, agriculture inputs and spare parts because of the pandemic and U.S. sanctions are all teaming up together to really kind of kick Cuba while they're down and uh, create that low sugar harvest. So if you have a sweet tooth, I really don't know what to tell you right now. Um, Cuba consumes between 600,000 and 700,000 tons of sugar a year domestically and has agreement to China to sell 400,000 tons annually. It's not clear if authorities plan to cut domestic consumption, exports to China or both. So we're going to be following this you know, pretty closely because I definitely have a sweet tooth. And especially if we're going into the summer months, that's like the time for ice cream, the time for snow cones, a lot of sugar consumption during these summer months. So this could be some pretty bad news for the sweet or sugar industries. Right. It sounds like supply shortages are really, you know, being the main theme here, especially with coming out of the pandemic. And I just feel like, you know, that's going to kind of be in the news wires for a little bit. I definitely agree. And I mean, I made some points there talking about ag inputs and um, the ability or inability, I should say, to get spare parts. And I mean, that's going on in Cuba, but we're seeing those same things happen here in the U.S. Well, to keep along the lines with uh, trade and agricultural commodities, USDA just reported that China purchased around around 700,000 metric tons of corn recently. Uh, and that was right away this morning. And that kind of, kind of comes right after purchasing, you know, 1.02 million metric tons yesterday, um, as well as following, you know, 1.36 million tons that was purchased last Friday. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, large purchases reach back into, you know, our SDA, our USDA numbers right now uh, with China. Cause I mean, a few months ago, they kind of had, you know, large report reporting numbers trying to, you know, really, really get into the agricultural supply and drive up prices. And so, you know, we're seeing the markets even react to that. Speaking of supply and demand, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is set to release the May 2020 World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report tomorrow, which comes out at 11 a.m. Central Time. Um, and we could really see either some maybe surprises with that are either bullish or bearish. Um, hopefully we don't see any surprises. Um, but this is actually going to be the first report that shows supply and demand tables for the new crop estimates as well. But as far as, you know, expectations on, you know, what analysts are expecting, uh, many are expecting the corn carryout for the 2021-20, for the 2020 and 2021 marketing year to be uh, 1.275 billion bushels versus the, you know, the 1.352 billion that we saw in April. Beans are expecting are also expected to lose 2 million bushels, um, totaling only 118 million. Um, and then wheat is also expected to be 2 million bushels lower um, at 852 million. For the new crop estimates, the expectations are seen for corn at 1.327 billion bushels with soybeans at 133 million and wheat at 751 million bushels. So basically, a lot of what we're going to be watching is, you know, Brazil's corn crop estimates, um, which, you know, a lot of people are really watching out for because they keep lowering those estimates. Um, and then kind of looking at Chinese imports, as well as, you know, just overall and demand for corn and soybeans. Um, it's really interesting to see what 
you know, China's supply and demand will look like as far as, you know, trying to get back with their herd numbers, which they reported at, you know, up 19% from this year, as well as the production up at 20%. So I don't know, that could really signal for maybe more higher demand and really, you know, not slowing down their corn imports. Dawson, I'm really kind of excited for the May WASD because like you said, it's the first report that we're going to see numbers for new crop and it should be pretty big. So going to keep an eye out on that. I'm sure Delaney tomorrow will have some numbers to talk. But in the meantime, I want to talk a little bit about wine. Dawson, are you are you 21 yet? I am 21. Are you a big wine drinker? I can't really say that I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am. And I I think Delaney is as well. We've talked a little bit about it before on the podcast. I actually, I take that back. She is. um, She did some kind of, I want to say she did some kind of study abroad and did something with wine. I don't know. Either way, she's done so much. I kind of forget sometimes, but I am a big wine drinker myself. And apparently so are folks out in the state of Michigan, because that industry for the state is worth $5.4 billion a year, which was a big surprise to me. But the Michigan Wine Collaborative is highlighting careers in that sector of agriculture this May as part of Michigan Wine Month. And May 24th or May 25th, excuse me, is National Wine Day. So it doesn't come as a surprise that this is their, you know, month for wine. But Executive Director Emily Docker told Brownfield Ag News that a major priority for their organization is to bring people to the industry who may have been historically excluded and enhance the sustainability of the sector. Of course, sustainability has been a large topic of agriculture. It's going to continue to be one, but I haven't really explored that on any specialty crops or anything like that. I feel like it's really about corn and beef. They're like the two big sectors that we've been talking about sustainability but um, I'm kind of excited to see, you know, how this plays out in the wine industry. Dockery was quoted as saying, we're focusing on all the amazing people in wine jobs, from media to tasting rooms to retail and restaurants to winemakers and viticulturalists. There's so much variety with jobs in the wine industry, and there's a lot of openings right now, too. She said that the coronavirus pandemic redirected wineries to increase digital marketing efforts and online sales, with direct shipping becoming a lifeline for businesses this year. And she also said that this year's wine month is focused on wine for all to support the state's 170 wineries and more than 47,000 people employed in the industry. Dockery added that so far, wine vineyards are faring well this growing season, despite the cold weather in Michigan, with little frost damage reported to date. So sounds like at least in the state of Michigan, there's some good stuff going on for our wine drinkers and those who are involved in winemaking. Well, that is really interesting. And you're right. We don't really hear much about, you know, different specialty crops bringing in, you know, making new products. And but I have noticed that, you know, wine stories are kind of creeping in the news wires. It sounds like uh, countries are really wanting to lower tariffs and kind of making, you know, wine trade more accessible to different countries as well. You're definitely right there, Dawson, but uh, I just have one other story to talk about today. There was quite a lot going on, and this last story is talking about Biden's trade agenda. Longtime U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley wants President Biden to get specific about his trade agenda. 
During a call with reporters earlier today, Grassley said that the president has had four months to explain what he means by, quote, build back better. Grassley was even quoted as saying, those three words are his words. However, these plans lack any specifics. Iowa manufacturers and farmers deserve to hear concrete actions that the Biden administration will take to expand our free trade. I think it's also just, you know, important to note, he talks about Iowa specifically. He is an Iowa Republican, so it kind of just makes sense. He's like fighting for his team, basically, you know, fighting for his roots. But Grassley also said that includes recent agreements with the United Kingdom and Kenya. I don't know if you have anything to follow up here with Dawson, but I... I haven't really heard a lot about these recent agreements with the UK and Kenya, but he, he being Grassley, said that these talks are well on their way even during the last year of the Trump administration. However, there's been no update on these agreements in the Biden trade policy agenda. Grassley expressed confidence in the ability of U.S. Trade Representative Tai to negotiate on behalf of farmers and manufacturers, and he says that he hopes President Biden gives her the power to do so. And last week, Dawson, we talked to Bill Bryant of Bryant Christie, Inc. about trade under Biden. So I think that this is really interesting. And if folks want to go after this episode and listen to that, if they haven't already, they can, of course, do so on the Ag News Daily website. Yeah, I agree. It just really sounds like, you know, Biden has all these plans for trade and agriculture, but he hasn't really gotten to any specifics. And, you know, the agriculture industry is really waiting on those specifics in order to, you know, do what they can to help, you know, meet those goals, as well as, you know, move the agricultural industry forward. Well, Dawson, do you have any other stories to talk about today? I do not. All righty. What do you say we hop into the markets? Alrighty. Well, we had some green on the screen that looks like across the board when it comes to the grain markets. Starting out in the corn, May contract up 11 and a half cents to close at 7.59 and a half. The July up 10 and a half to close at 7.22 and a quarter. The Dece up two cents to close at 6.11 and a quarter. In soybeans, the May contract up 17 and a half to close at 1637 and a half. The July up 27 and a quarter to close at 1614 and three quarters. And the November up 17 and a quarter to close at 1431 and a half. Heading over to the wheat markets. The May contract up 17 and a quarter to close at 759 and three quarters. The July up 11 and a quarter to close at 741 and three quarters. And rounding out the wheat markets with a December contract up eight and a quarter to close at 743 even. Heading over to the livestock markets. Starting out in live cattle, the June up 40 cents to close at $118.62 and a half cents. The August up $1.70 to close at $122 and a half a cent. The October up $1.60 to close at $126 and 15 cents. The feeder cattle, the May contract down 12 and a half cents to close at $135.32 and a half cents. The August up 15 cents to close at 148.85. dollars 
the September, up 40 cents to close at $150.47.5. And in lean hogs, red across the screen, not looking too hot here today. The May contract down 42.5 cents to close at 111.47.5. The June down 92.5 cents to close at 111. 17 and a half and the July down a dollar 27 and a half to close at 111 42 and a half that 111 mark is just really all across the board here for lean hogs rounding on our markets here in the dairy market class three milk the May up three cents to close at 1889 the June up 18 cents to close at 19 even and in the July up 19 cents to close at 1939 well, for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, like I said earlier, we're talking to a company out in Australia. So let's kick it over to our conversation talking about Farmers to Founders. Today, I am talking to Dr. Christine Pitt, who is the co-founder and executive director of Farmers to Founders Christine, thank you so much for joining. Right now, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon here in the U.S., but you're all the way over there in Australia. So thank you for, you know, kind of having an early-ish morning and coming and talking to us. That's great, Ashton, and it's not too early for me, 8.30, and it's a lovely sunny day, and I'm on a beach, so that's uh, not a problem at all. <laughs> well, you're doing much better than I am. I'd love to be on the beach right now. Unfortunately, in Lubbock, I mean, we do have a lot of sand, but not a whole lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> Christine, um, moving forward here, let's talk a little bit about you. You are the co-founder and executive director of Farmers to Founders. So let's hear a little bit more about your background and how the idea of Farmers to Founders came to be. Yeah, well, it's been a bit of a long story. I think, um, you know, there's always that saying, you can be an overnight success after 20 years but of working in an industry, but um yeah, my background uh, is quite diverse. I come from originally health, um, worked my way through a lot of manufacturing technology, finance, those sorts of things, and then eventually, I guess, found my place in the food and agriculture sector probably about 20 years ago now. Um, I was working with a very large industry body here in Australia called Meat and Livestock Australia, so as the name would suggest, uh, a red meat and livestock um organization. So, so I started initially looking at a lot of technology and innovation. And my role as a, as a senior executive there was to, if you like, source technologies from around the world that could be brought into Australia or attracted to Australia to help our farmers become more efficient, but also look at more uh, opportunities in value-added markets. So that was my background. Um, and then about I guess five years ago, we started working a lot with startups. Up until that point in time, most of our work was with big technology companies, automation, robotics, um, environmental technologies, those sorts of things. And then we started to see a real change in the ecosystem and the landscape that meant that startups were really starting to play a role. So that was where my real interest got peaked um, with the ag tech and food tech world. And uh, from there, it was I guess a natural progression for me to, to move into this space. We did a lot of work with producers in that sector um, and found that, you know, producers themselves were really keen to get involved, not just as adopters of technology or passive uh, recipients of technology, but also they wanted to get in and solve some of the problems themselves. And that's really what inspired us to start Farmers to Founders. So in 2018, I left my corporate role and started building this business. 
Well, Christine, that is certainly a journey there. And I'm excited to talk a little bit more about Farmers to Founders. You have three different initiatives. So let's go ahead and kind of get into them. The first one here that I see on your website is the Ideas Program. So why don't you take us through that? Yeah, well, we actually, we have kind of two streams, if you like. So as I mentioned, um, we really started to recognize that producers themselves wanted to get involved directly in the development of some of the solutions. I guess they were a little bit frustrated that um, some of the technology companies were not really listening to them or really understanding their problems and were more focused just on building bright and shiny new technologies that weren't necessarily going to help uh, and solve what they needed to have solved. So that's our what we call our venture creation stream, and that's where the Ideas Program and our boot care program fit. So the Ideas Program, as the name suggests, is for producers who are really at the early stage of thinking about problems that they have on their own farms or opportunities they see with their neighbours um, and thinking about whether this is a, something that they could get involved in. Could they build a solution and then go on and build a business around that solution? So typically they come in just with an idea or sometimes many ideas. And, and what we do is take them through a 12-week, very early stage accelerator program. They're in a cohort of about 10 to 15 usually. And they work on their idea. We take them through all of the traditional lean startup design thinking methodologies, which most of them have never really been exposed to before. Um, and at the end of that program, some of them have made a very wise decision that this is not for them, that it's, you know, there, there was not really a deep enough problem to create a business around, whereas others have really, you know, powered on and moved forward and have some really viable business ideas. And so by the end of the program, that's what they're going to start working on, that business, building that business and building out their solutions and just, um, you know, really having some alternatives that they can they can work on for themselves as well as, as I said, their neighbours and then eventually a much broader customer base. So, yeah, that's our that's our ideas program. We um, There's two streams. So sometimes those producers are looking at ag tech, what we would call ag tech solutions, so technologies that are going to help their farming practice and efficiencies on farm or help them become more sustainable. And then the other stream in that program is our value-adding food tech stream. So that's producers who are looking to get closer to consumers, build out new products and really take a bit more ownership along that value chain and create closer connections along the value chain as well. So really exciting, really interesting, uh, very diverse, very good uh, diversity in our in our producers amongst men and women, um, young and old. So you know we have a very very eclectic group usually in our programs, and you know they're great to work with. Absolutely, Christine. And you know once people kind of graduate from the ideas program, do they then kind of move into the boot camp program if that is kind of the avenue that they are wanting to go down? Yeah, well, what we're finding is uh, some can move really quickly. We've actually got a boot camp program operating right now, and one of our previous ideas program um, participants moved straight into that. In fact, they before they'd even graduated from ideas program, we invited them into the boot camp. So that's pretty rare, though. Normally what we find is it takes a while to digest. Um, so after the ideas program, they might spend three, six, nine months even really, you know, getting that idea bedded down, getting their business structures in place. We don't abandon them. Um, we keep 
very, very close to our alumni and we have a really strong community around our programs now. And so we, you know, we continue to bring, obviously in a COVID world, we haven't done so much face-to-face in the last 15 months, but we, we keep our community very well connected virtually. We have regular kind of get-togethers. We bring alumni back and they meet our new program participants. So we're always there, if you like, to help and coach and advise our uh, graduates. And then as they, you know, move those, you know, it's a funnel, so not everyone moves down the same pathway. Um, But as they start to move towards something um, that's going to be a serious viable business, revenue generating, then we really encourage them to apply for our boot camp, which is pretty competitive. And Christine, the, the final program that you guys have is the early adopter. And that seems like quite a lot of work that kind of goes into that program. So can you just share with us, you know, the 10,000 foot view of the early adopter program? Yeah, well, as our name implies farmers to founders, there's a couple of ways in which we believe farmers can interact with the startup and, uh, you know, this fast moving ag tech community. So the programs that I've just described, IDs program and then Bootcamp, which is a more um, scale-up type accelerator program that goes over four or five months. Um, other times, and sometimes they're even graduates from our programs, the, the producers decide, you know, this is not for me. I don't want to be that founder. I don't want to be that entrepreneur, but I'm really wanting to be very much engaged in the development of solutions. So that's what our early adopter program is about. It's about bringing farmers and typically tech founders together in a community around key challenges. Um, So whether those challenges are connectivity, which is a big problem here in Australia, as I know it is in parts of the US, whether it's, you know, solving big issues around uh, that are impacted by climate change uh, or, you know, there's a number of problems that producers share. So we will typically bring together maybe a cohort of about 25 producers and match them up with solution providers who are still working on developing technologies and really want to get close to to farmers. So it's a two-way relationship, our early adopter program. Christine, I'm really interested to know some of the technologies that you guys have been working with. Can you give us a little bit of insight on that? Yep, well, in our ag tech area, not surprisingly, um, a lot of our founders are working on software solutions that will deliver, you know, efficiency gains, better information, better visibility. Um, so our, our producers come from across all sorts of agricultural sectors. So we've got wine producers, you know, broad acre, broad acre cropping, grain producers, livestock producers, etc. So a, a number of the solutions are looking at how do they improve efficiencies um, through better data management, some, you know, integrating data uh, analytics with sensors, uh, smart smart um, machine learning types of technologies in the wine industry. So things that are really just going to give those farmers a better visibility of what's happening on their farm, whether it's tracking their operational processes. Uh, we've got one, um, one particular technology that's looking at machinery maintenance records, um, those sorts of things. So, you know, the sort of things that you would see across the ag tech community worldwide. And then we also have hardware developers. So we have a regenerative farmer at the moment in our in our program that's looking at developing um, smart technologies that will improve soil health um, and allow him to and his farming practice to, um, you know, to avoid any of the things that are around fertilisers and things by improving that soil um, soil health. At the other end, we've got um, 
really some really interesting work at the moment happening in uh, producers who are looking at fermentation uh, processes to build out new alternative, you know, to work in the alternative protein space. So some of that really kind of food tech area and then some more traditional um, product development, not, not necessarily new technologies. Well, Christine, I think that this is a question that's kind of on a lot of folks' minds right now, and that is, are you guys working with people globally or is it just in Australia at the moment? Uh, at the moment, our target is Australian producers, but we definitely work globally when it comes to matching up with technology solution providers. So, yeah, we, we, we're, we're very much a globally out, a global outward-facing company and really keen to connect with any of your listeners who would like to talk to us about, you know, their solutions coming to Australia. But also we have um, other companies. So Farmers to Founders is a very, very bespoke company for producers in Australia. We saw there was a market um, gap there that producers were not being catered for. But we do have other businesses um, in Singapore and in Australia that are definitely working globally with our cohorts. Uh, fund backed in Singapore and we invite participation from uh, ag tech and food tech businesses from all around the world. That business is called Grow. Well, Christine, if some of our listeners do want to reach out to you and connect, where can they do so? Um, well, I'm happy if you wanted to pr provide my details, if you would like me to do that, or um, they could go onto our Farmers to Founders website, uh, which is farmers with the numeral two in between, .com, and, uh, and certainly there's lots of easy ways to connect through that website directly with us, and we'd love to speak with them and hear from them. Awesome, Christine. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us about Farmers to Founders. It's certainly been a joy to get to know you as well as all the different programs that you guys have. Thank you. It's been great talking to you, Ashton. You guys take care. Thanks again there to Christine for coming and talking to us about F2F. Definitely interesting. I always think it's fun to do some of these international interviews. Dawson, we're going to have to have you on for one of those here soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, folks, in case you missed any of our Tech Tuesday interview last week, you can go and check that out on agnewsdaily.com. But we're also going to be having some great interviews the rest of the week, so be sure to tune in. And with that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.